Welcome everybody to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Today we have on Mehdi Hassan. That's how it's pronounced. I've okay. heard. Yes. I always I've always said Mehdi Hassan. But that's the classic like white boy way of saying it. <laughs> well, we're excited to have Mehdi this week. Obviously, I uh, parted ways with MSNBC, but is launching his own venture. And also, I mean, there's a lot to talk to him about in terms of domestic politics and certainly what is unfolding in Israel. Um, just receiving word this morning of this horrific massacre of starving Gazans who were just trying to get food, more than 100 killed. So get his reaction to what's going on in the ground there as well. Yeah. So a lot of stuff to get to. But before we do, we have some big news, um, Supreme Court-wise, Trump-wise. Go ahead and fill everybody in on that. Yeah. So Trump actually scoring what is, in effect, a huge win for him in terms of delaying the election subversion case possibly possibly beyond election day. The Supreme Court has decided to take up this preposterous, really, question of whether or not Trump has complete immunity for literally everything he did while he was president of the United States. And most legal analysts, although you can't guarantee, don't think they're going to ultimately side with him. If they did, that would be the wildest shit of all time, just like actually saying the president can do whatever they want and commit whatever crimes they want with no consequences whatsoever. But the key thing here is the delay that it will cause. So uh, CNN reporting that they say they're going to take this up the week of April 22. That means the actual trial for this won't start based on the previous comments of the judge and how they're going to handle the timeline. Likely won't start till September, October at the earliest. So, again, very possible this gets pushed beyond Election Day. Or, I mean, there is a possibility that then this trial is unfolding right in level, like peak election season and all of the events of January 6th and the election subversion stuff, all the stop the steal, you know, rigging that led up to that could be put front and center in front of the American people just before the election day. That is a possibility. But for Trump, who doesn't have a great legal argument here or in a variety of other cases, just pushing this thing off has been his strategy from the beginning. Yeah. So the idea is Supreme Court takes this up, that delays the trial, kicks the can down the road, gives him an opportunity to win the election. Then if he's back in office, there is no dispute. You actually can't criminally charge a president who is currently sitting. According to like DOJ guidance and memo, like it's not actually set in stone, but they would likely abide that by that. And since it's federal charges, he could also pardon himself. Um, pardon himself. This the, is insane. And, and the other cases are not in great shape either. Um, yeah, the, the Fannie Willis one. Right. The only mm -hmm. one that actually looks like it's really going forward full steam Hush ahead money. is the New York one, which is the weakest one right. and has the lowest level of charges. And they did have to do some like sort of creative legal justifications to raise that to the level of a felony. That one looks like it's about to start, um, but the Georgia case is not in a great shape. They're, you know, arguing over this affair that Fannie Willis had. And so that's ongoing and kind of not, you know, we don't know what's going to happen there in terms of timing. The documents case down in Florida, he got a very sort of favorable judge there who that one is. I think he appointed the judge, right? Eileen Cannon. Yes. That one is very unlikely from what I'm reading to, to even start before the uh, before election day. So, so he's, you know, he's getting lucky in all these cases. So in other words, the case that in my estimation is the strongest, the Jack Smith case where I read through the entire indictment. Remember, we debated Michael Tracy on the merits of that case. The documents. Yeah, one. I'm very. Uh, no, I'm talking about the Jack election Smith. subversion. Yeah, election. Those subversion. are both Jack Smith. Cases, yeah, 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 yeah. OK. But um, I remember as I was reading through it, I was like, this really seems like a strong 
case that he's made. Yeah. I thought uh, it, people argued, oh, these are some novel interpretations, et cetera. But it's also a novel instance of a former president trying to effectively overthrow the election. So, of course, by definition, some of it was going to be novel. But I remember thinking it was really, really, really strong. And then now what we're learning is they're basically kicking the can down the road to try mm-hmm. to make it so that that doesn't happen before Election Day, which kind of nullifies it in a sense. Yeah. Right. No, it kind of nullifies it in a that's sense. That's exactly right. And with regard to that case, I actually just recently saw a poll and, you know, I'm skeptical of people aren't great at anticipating how they'll react to different eventualities. But this poll asked people about the specific cases like, okay, if he's found guilty in the election subversion case, would you vote for him? If he's found guilty in the documents case, would you vote for him? And that was the one that actually had the biggest negative impact on him was the documents case, which I wouldn't have necessarily predicted because I feel like the stop the steal stuff and January 6th like looms so large in terms of the horror that people who hate Trump feel about him being back in office. But it does make sense to me on another level because the the documents case, case is very clear cut. And it also speaks to something else that people hate about Trump, which is that he just feels like he's above it all, like the rules don't apply to him. Like he's both incredibly sloppy, but then also like very intentionally subverting the law in this instance and just thinks he can do it and get away with it because he's who he, he, who he is. And so it was interesting to me that at least in this poll, people were saying, no, that's the one that I actually find to be the most damaging to him. So two tier justice system in the opposite way from what he means, because yes. when he says two tier justice system, it's like you guys are being extra hard on me. Right. And in reality, the two tier is like, actually, they took away easy on you, bro. Oh, and yeah. You got away with a lot, a lot, a lot of no. stuff. No private citizen would have gotten away with the document crap people. Definitely. So uh, just so everybody understands, the the Supreme Court taking even taking up this case, right? Like you said, most experts think they'll swat it aside and be like, we're not siding with Trump. But just yeah. the fact that they took this up is beyond absurd yes. because Trump's argument is I'm immune from literally anything and everything, which by its very nature means you're setting a precedent that somebody like Joe Biden would be immune from absolutely everything. And this is okay. So the argument that they made in the hearing before it got to the Supreme Court, uh, one of the judges asked, so what if the president's responsible for murder, like getting SEAL Team 6 to assassinate one of their political opponents? And the argument from Trump's side was uh, at first it was you literally can't do anything about it. Yeah. Then it morphed into when they realized that's not a tenable position. It was like he needs to be impeached as president and then convicted on that impeachment in the Senate in order for there to be any consequences where after that you could maybe try them criminally. Right. Which is, as you pointed out, that's an insane standard. Joe Biden could order an assassination of Donald Trump, step down before any impeachment hearings begin, and just get away with it scot-free. That's right. Guys, this is Game of Thrones level insanity. This is like total wild, wild west. Let's go back to the medieval times. Let's, you know, do coups and have total immunity for the people who are at the time. Yep. This is, I mean, literally insane. Absolutely insane. Yeah. And this is what they're hearing. So I don't know if you know the, the answer to this, but do you know which justices said like, yeah, we're going to hear that? Do we not know? which I, justices? I, I don't think that we know. OK, from what I read, I haven't seen any names on. Um, yeah, I don't I don't think that we get information about which justices wanted to take it up and, and which didn't. But there had been some hope that they would just let the um, appeals court ruling, federal appeals court ruling yeah, stand. Of course, because it was unanimous mm-hmm. and because it was scathing. I mean, they were not close. The Republican justices, the Democratic justices, whoever they were appointed by, they were all like, this is fucking insane. And I think even the Trump team knew that this was sort of like a Hail Mary. But all they had to do... The delay tactic. 
was to get the Supreme Court just to agree to, to take it That's up. It. And the timeline is, like I said, April 22nd, they're going to hear oral arguments. Expectation is we get a decision by the end of June. The judge on the case has made some comments about the amount of time they want to give Trump to be able to prepare. That's why people are saying, okay, we're looking at September, October. Then he's only one more, you know, some kind of challenge away from it being after Election Day. And if he wins, that's it. So now, by the way, at the same time that this came down, we got news that now another state has sided against Trump on the section three of the 14th Amendment question, the insurrection clause. So the idea is, I think it was a court in Illinois, and you have all the facts, you can correct me in a second. A court in Illinois was like, sorry, we're kicking you off the ballot because you violated the plain face reading of section three of the 14th Amendment, and you did an insurrection, or at the very least aided and abetted an insurrection. So now that's what the third state that has now said you can't be on the ballot? Yes, so this is a judge in Illinois, Um, The judge, I guess, was appointed by a Democrat or is a Democrat, um, and they ruled on Wednesday that he had engaged in insurrection and was therefore ineligible to appear on the state's primary ballot as per that clause in the Constitution and the uh, 14th Amendment. They say the decision creates uncertainty on the state's March election in which early voting is already underway and also adds urgency. I'm reading from The New York Times for the U.S. Supreme Court to provide a national answer to the questions that have been raised about Mr. Trump's eligibility to appear on ballots in more than 30 states. So um, the Supreme Court, already they already had oral arguments with regards to this question. And most of the people who listened to those and the snippets I saw, whatever, it seemed like the justices kind of across the board were pretty skeptical of the arguments being made in favor of removing Trump from the ballot. It seems unlikely that they're going to side with Illinois and Colorado and what was a Maine was, I think, the other, the third one that also removed him from the ballot. Um, But it is still an open question. But I think most court observers think they're very likely to smack this down. Yeah. And I also of all the states that have acted so far, none of them are crucial swing states. Right. That's the other thing to keep your eye on. It's like, which states are acting on this? Well, if if it was like, you know, Michigan or something, then it's like, oh, but it's not. It's also the number of states that have have taken this position versus there's right. a, a much larger yeah. number that have taken the other position. And the Supreme Court, I mean, they're a bunch of cowards, right? This would be a very, it would be a very bold, right, for them to rule that he could be kicked off the ballot. Now, I, and the questions are genuinely complicated and tricky because this hasn't been used in a long time. And what did they mean at the time? And has it been used in the past? And all these like little nuanced political questions, et cetera. Um, but they're, I don't think that they putting their ideology aside, even apart from the fact that this is an overwhelmingly conservative court that may want to help Donald Trump. I just don't think that they have the stones to make yeah. this kind of a bold move. And that's what I've been saying the whole time. I mean, they did it in Bush versus Gore to help the Republicans, mm-hmm. right? Then they had no problem taking a massive leap into, you know, electoral politics to be like, nah, we're going to shut down the recount. Bush wins. True. But now it's a situation where the shoe's kind of on the other foot. I think that was the wrong decision, by the way, Bush Mm. v. Gore. But this one, I actually think by the plain face reading of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, I actually think it would be a reasonable decision. I mean, when you read it, you're like... It's like tailor-made for what happened. If this doesn't apply to Trump, then it doesn't doesn't apply apply to anyone when you just read it on its face. And elected officials have been kicked out of their positions for just being at January 6th. Mm -hmm. So it's already stood up in court 
in some instances. Yeah. Well, and that may, I mean, if the Supreme Court rules against this, that may actually have implications for those people as well. We'll see. So that's where things stand so far. I mean, maybe, I also don't want to underestimate, I, I sort of swatted aside the New York case, which is moving forward here quickly. You know, I do want to hold space for the fact that peop, a lot of people just, you know, if they think you're a criminal and you're found guilty of something, the fact that it's this case and not the other case or whatever, I'm not sure that the all of those details go into the sense of like, oh, we can't elect this guy who's a convicted felon, even if it is the the weakest of the cases, which is the hush money New yeah, York you're case. you're saying just the accumulation of the cases alone gives people a feeling of like, I don't know about this. Well, yes. And ev- so even if some of the graver charges like the election subversion and the documents case are not actually, you know, adjudicated until post-election, the fact that you even have the New York case going forward could potentially be significant electorally and make people feel like this guy's a criminal. Like we just can't, yeah, even I mean, though it's not the, you know, the wildest stuff that he did. It's, it is a little bit of the like Al Capone on tax evasion kind of a situation. That's, that's honestly, that's Trump's Achilles heel. And that's what I've been saying all along is that, you know, Biden has his own Achilles heels. The fact that he's aiding and abetting a genocide in Gaza is hurting him with very key demographics. Um, Keep it real. Based on the polling, his age is a massive, massive issue. So he's got these big Achilles heels. But for people to pretend like the 91 criminal charges are not the Achilles heel of Trump, I think that's laughable. Because, look, I mean, yeah, it's true that in the Republican primary, they they either swat that aside or maybe even use that in his favor. Mm -hmm. But that's just not the case in a general election. And what we've been seeing in all the elections we've had to this point, all the primary races, Trump is consistently underperforming the polls. Yeah. 8% here, 8% there, 7% there, 10% in Michigan. So as weak as Biden is in a variety of different ways, Trump's got a couple massive Achilles heels. I would also argue Roe v. Wade is one that's just a strike against all the Republicans too. Yeah. And it's like, you know, it's a race to the bottom. Who do you hate the least? That's yeah. who's going to end up winning on election day. And it's it's a close call. Mm, that's it's a right. close yeah. call. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's go ahead and get to our guest, Matty Hassan, who um, has just launched a new media company called Zateo that we're excited to ask him about. Let's get to it. Matty, great to see you. Welcome. Thanks for having me here. Yeah. Congrats on the media launch also. Yeah, appreciate it. In fact, I was thinking about both of you uh, this week as I was thinking about launching because because I, I watch and read everything. Because <laughs> I, After I left MSNBC, both of you in separate platforms said, I wonder if he's going to go do his own thing. And I was like, here I am with both of you. Well, so you're I, cut out for it. Well, um, I hope I'm as successful as both of you. I, I think, you know, you, you definitely have a, a voice and the, the talent to be able to pull it off. Thank so you. I'm very excited to see what Appreciate you have it. to offer at Zateo. And we'll get to that in a minute. I first wanted to start with some of the... Latest horror coming out of uh, the Gaza Strip reports that over 100 Palestinians were massacred, um, trying to get food from aid trucks that were coming in. And, you know, part of the the most critical part of the story is the horror there as, you know, they're starving to death. Now you literally have babies that are starving to death, acute malnutrition across the Gaza Strip. Um, You know, this as the Israeli government has allowed these protesters to set up bouncy castles and block aid coming in. This as the U.S. cut funding to UNRWA. The IDF already, you know, lying and saying, oh, they just trampled on one another. Well, we have video of the IDF firing directly on these starving Palestinians. So just wanted to get your reaction to what we know right now from the ground. It's a horror show. And what's happening, and here's a question for you. We're recording this in the morning. Is it going to be the top story on the nightly news? Mm. Probably not. 
Al Jazeera reporting in detail what's happening on the ground. And I hate to play this game, but we have to when it comes to Israel. What would we be saying and doing as a media, as politicians in this country, if this was happening somewhere else? Right. right. If it was Russia doing this to Ukraine. If this was If, if this it was, was has ha- happened Ukraine. to Israel. Right. Mm. If it was Hamas massacring Israelis. If it was the Iranian government mm-hmm. right. shooting protesters in this way, a hundred people dead. Let's say that's an exaggeration. The Israelis say everything. Let's say it's 10 people dead. Still a massacre. Ukraine, let's not forget the entire Ukraine revolution. Wherever you stand on Ukraine, it begins in 2014, Euromaidan. Where do you stand on those protests? Remember, the, the Ukrainian side talk about snipers on buildings shooting into crowds. Now, people argue about that for the last decade, about what happened there. But that is what drove a lot of people to say we need to support Ukraine because people were massacred and the president fled, etc. How is this happening with one of our allies? How is the Israeli government doing this with American weaponry, American bullets, American logistical and intelligence support? massacring people going for food? Where have we reached at this point? This is be- If I, as a critic of Israel, couldn't create a situation like this, if you told yeah. me to write down like a really bad scenario for Israel, uh, and I said, oh, Israel massacres 100 people going to get food, you would say, that's ridiculous. That's a little extreme. Tone down. Tone down the story. That's what we're seeing. We're seeing, as you said, babies starving to death. A toddler this week, Crystal, died from poisoning because they ate bread that was made out of animal feed because the people in Gaza have no ingredients now to make basic necessities. They're using animal feed, which is then poisoning them. Uh. This is a mad main famine. Food is just around the corner. It's behind the bouncy castles, as you mentioned. This is not a natural disaster. This is a man-made famine, which is being done without complicity. I mean, so I'll ask you about this. They've gotten... From my perspective, it looks like the U.S. has gotten really, really lazy with the whole rules-based international order, you know, international law, like we're the world police type stuff. The mask has kind of been ripped off and it's exposed as a fraud. And uh, it's interesting because the Israeli government is actually much more direct and straightforward about what they're doing. And the U.S. comes in on the back end and tries to like dress it up. Like, yeah. oh no, they're actually uh, doing their best to, to dark yes. What do you make of this uh, functional collapse of the idea of the rules-based international order? So I was on MSNBC with Chris Hayes the night Joe Biden did that um, speech where he compared Russia and Hamas, if you remember. He said both of them are the, they're the two sides of the same coin. And Chris asked me, how does the rest of the world see that rhetoric? And I said, the rest of the world sees Russia and Israel right. as analogies. They're mm-hmm. the two invaders and occupiers. And people lost their minds. People got very upset on social media that I dared make a comparison. Because sadly, a lot of the folks, a lot of the liberals with Ukraine flags in their biogs also tend to be saying, well, it's all Hamas's fault. They don't see the double standard. You either support a fight against occupation everywhere or you don't. And... The rest of the world sees the hypocrisy. Has always seen the hypocrisy. Yeah. Now this is not new. The point now is it's so brazen, it's so extreme that never again can the U.S. with a straight face or anyone on behalf of the U.S. go to anywhere else in the world and because it will be what about you want to talk about what aboutism? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There will be a what about Gaza for the next five, ten, fifteen, twenty, twenty-five years. We're still not over Iraq. The rest of the world mm-hmm. still remembers what happened in Iraq, That's even right. if everyone in America has memory hold our illegal invasion in 03. This is Iraq on steroids in some ways. Yeah. I saw a former UN official say this week on the BBC that the kill rate in Gaza has now reached, uh, he said it's the worst kill rate of any conflict since Rwanda in terms of the proportionate killings every day of a population. That's horrific. And yeah, by the way, did you see the Axios reporting this week that said 
the Americans have told the Netanyahu administration that they have till mid-March to sign a document saying they'll abide by international law when no. using American weapons. Uh, so think about how crazy that is. Number insane. one, why wouldn't you have signed that on October the 8th? Why wait till now? And number two, even when they sign it, it's not tomorrow. You have till mid-March to do whatever the hell you want. And then you have to abide by international law. Again, this is beyond parody. You couldn't write right. this stuff up. You couldn't make a movie about this. You'd say, that's just silly. Well, and they're already signatories to a genocide convention, and that doesn't seem to have stopped them. I mean, we already have our own laws in place that are supposed to ensure that we aren't shipping weapons to be used yep. in war Multiple other laws. Mm -hmm. and so we don't law. need them to, like, and the idea that they're going to self-certify, and this is what you hear from Matthew Miller and all the others at the podium is like, they're invested. We've asked them to do an investigation or we're doing an investigation. We never hear back any of the results of these investigations of repeated atrocities. But we do and they give themselves a clean chip That's as right. they did with mm -hmm. the little girl who called for the ambulance. That's right. He's just like, nah, we no, weren't in the area. Us. It wasn't, in the wasn't words us. of the great Shaggy, it wasn't me. Um, <laughs> So uh, Ben Gavir, Israeli Minister of National yes. Security, uh, addressing this massacre, said that uh, we must stand by our heroic fighters operating in Gaza and applaud their exceptional conduct against a group of thugs who attempted to harm them. So going back to Carl's point, Christy, you mentioned Ben Gavir. What makes this so brazen? And you talked about American cleanup. I think that's one of the reasons why Gaza stands out from other episodes of US foreign policy hypocrisy or aggression in that in the old days, everyone could get together and come up with a common narrative. Right? Us and our allies could say, we're all working towards one. Now it's like Matthew Miller will stand at the podium and say, we support international law and settlements are inconsistent and we don't want to kill civilians. And then Israelis will get up and say, no, 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 settlements are fine and we're happy killing those people because mm -hmm. they're all Nazis. Right. So there is a real... And we all just attended our ethnic cleansing yeah. conference yeah, where we right. cheered for complete resettlement. Exactly. And at the same time as American died. officials are like, this is not right. Or, or you have people like Joe Biden saying, well, these people are fringe figures. You mean the finance minister and the national security minister? Yeah, real the, fringe figures. The president figures. who said uninvolved civilians, the, yes. yeah, the prime minister who These said, are senior figures, that, as the South African genocide petition pointed out. Also, I love the idea, do you remember the heritage minister right at the start said we should nuke Gaza? Mm -hmm. right. And then Netanyahu you know, said, I will suspend him. And he was suspended for like a day. And, and then he, right couldn't, he couldn't take a phone call. I think of that story and I just think to myself, imagine in the US, if, imagine if um, Gina Raimondo stood up and said, let's kill all the Jews. And Biden said, She's just the commerce secretary, guys. Calm down. Right. Well, I mean, that's literally what happened in Israel. For like they, were like, they were like, he's a junior minister. Junior ministers can call for genocide of a people. <laughs> it's just mind-boggling. And, and I think that, that means the cleanup is impossible. It means the rest of the world can see this very clearly. You saw it in real time when Biden is standing in a fundraiser saying... Yes, they do believe in a two-state solution. And Netanyahu's like, no, 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 we don't. Right. And Biden's like, no, 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 they do. And Biden, no, no, we don't. It's, so is No, there, we don't. And is, I've been spending my entire career. Yes. He yeah. bragged about, sure. about it. He, he bragged about it. Yeah, I'm right. the guy who bragged about so it. So is there, and this is a question I've been struggling with. I think I know the answer, even though it's not a good answer. Is there anything that Israel can do that would make the U.S. say, all right, you know what? We're going to cut off your weapons and cut off your money and maybe allow a condemnation through with you. And I don't know if there's any, if they no. were to nuke Gaza tomorrow, which they, the only reason they wouldn't do it is because they might get some nuclear winter fallout from that. Right. But is there anything? That can be done where Biden would be like, and you know what? Too far. Because we've seen everything short yeah. of a nuclear weapon. It's a great question. I, I don't know the answer. It's too scary to think about because to answer that question, you then have to create really, really scary scenarios beyond, as you say, what we've already seen. Now, I'm not of the school 
there is a school of thought that says, you hear people say, well, it's not genocide because they could kill everyone. There was a, a Jewish group that put up an ad. They had to take it down, I believe, saying it's not genocide because we could have killed every Israel could have killed everyone, which is a weird brag, weird flex to make. Um, but the truth is, yes, Israel could kill more people. I just want to be clear about that. They could kill more people. They might kill more people. They're threatening to kill more people in Rafa over Ramadan or after Ramadan. Um, the London School of uh, Tropical Hygiene and Johns Hopkins has put out a study saying, even if the war stopped tomorrow, six and a half thousand more people are going to die from bad health. That's and right. if they escalate, 75,000 people could die in the next six months. So the death toll could go up. And I say this to uh, some on the left who say, well, there's no difference between Trump and Biden. And it's a horrible argument to get into, which I'm not going to get into today. But I would make one point. I do believe the death toll would be even higher today if Trump was president because, again, they do have the capacity to kill far more and they will in the coming months. And by the way, Ben Gavir is the guy who's on record saying we could do way more if Trump was president. So that's Ben Gavir's words. Um, you're right. I don't know what they would do to, to stop this. Biden has had every chance to stop this. My first column for The Guardian uh, last week was exactly on this subject of there is no helplessness. There is no feigned powerlessness, to quote Adam Johnson. You could stop this with a phone call. And the fact that he won't, he won't even tamp it down with a phone call makes me think, yeah, what, what would it take if killing people who are going for food, if starving babies to death, uh, rape now? We heard so much about uh, sexual assault and the horrors of October the 7th. And yet now we're hearing from a UN panel of experts that there are credible uh, allegations of rape of Palestinian detainees in Gaza. I've not heard anything nope. uh, from the American government or members of Congress about that. It, you know, the mass killing of children, a graveyard for children. Um, the statistics are horrific, right? The, the most UN workers killed in any conflict, the most journalists killed in any conflict, the most hospitals destroyed in modern times. If none of that can get liberals to say this has to stop and they can just do this defensive crouch of but Hamas. Right. And I don't know what, what it would take to stop aid. Well, and we should be clear, it's liberal elites because the Democratic base does not agree with Joe Very Biden good on point. this. I Very mean, good point. A majority of Democrats believe Israel is committing genocide. And another 30% are like, not sure. They could be. So, um, and that's with all the media coverage weighted against. Right. It. Well, Imagine if, if we actually had fairer coverage yeah, of the conflict, those numbers would accurate, be way Accurate, right. accurate coverage. Accurate so coverage. to that point, I wanted to get your reaction to, you know, with regards to what's being called the flower massacre this morning as um, Palestinians were mowed down while they're searching for food. This is how CNN uh, reported this on Twitter. They said at least 100 killed and 700 injured in chaotic incident where IDF opened fire as people waited for food in Gaza, Palestinian officials say. Yeah. And, I mean, you see this systematically. Um, in fact, there's studies that show, this isn't just, you know, us cherry-picking, that when it's Israelis, yes. they're murdered, they're slaughter, massacred, horrific. they're slaughtered. Yeah, they intercepted that study yep, showing words right. like massacre, slaughter, and uh, horrific. And when it's Palestinians, they just mysteriously die. There's no, passive know, language. no assignment of blame, et cetera. I saw a great tweet, Crystal, from someone the other day saying, find someone who looks at you the way the BBC looks at the passive voice when it comes to Gaza. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. That's right. right. It up. And mm -hmm. Palestinian, you know, kids can never be kids. They're, minors. you know, they're minors. Or in the case of one Sky News report, I think it was a three-year-old who was murdered. Young she lady. was like a young lady. Yeah. Um, you know, you were inside the mainstream media ecosystem, as was I. Where does this come from? Is this like an edict from on high? Do you have like Mossad waiting in the wings to make sure that you're using this kind of language and you're only focusing on certain things that show Israel in a, in a certain regard? Is it that people have been so propagandized that they actually, you know, can't even see the way that their bias comes through in their reporting? Like, what do you attribute this to? 
I think a lot of it is the last point which you mentioned, which is the way I try and place the Palestinian conflict is I try and give it a broader context, which is this doesn't just happen in Palestine. The Palestine may be the most egregious case of censorship and dehumanization that we know of. Yeah. But it happens in other walks of life. Sure. And there's a reason why a lot of black activists from Ferguson and elsewhere linked up with people in Gaza and the West Bank years ago is because a lot of, when I see the Israeli military denying stuff and reports what you just said about official say and chaotic scenes, doesn't it remind you of police statements after shootings? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. After shooting a black Absolutely. guy? It's like, well, yeah. he ran, he fled and people, he oh, it was chaos. And, and then later on, oh, we investigated ourselves and we cleared ourselves. And later on, video emerges, you were lying. And I always tell reporters in America, look, just as in recent years, we've realized to show a little bit more skepticism when it comes to police statements in mass shoot uh, of of, of of black men in traffic stops. Why don't we show that same skepticism when it comes to Israeli claims and Israeli military PR? And I think there is a dehumanization both of black men at traffic stops and Palestinians at checkpoints and Palestinians going about their daily lives. The dehumanization, Crystal, is at the core, I believe, of why this conflict continues the way it does, because Palestinian lives don't have the same value as Israeli lives. And people have said this for years. I've said this for years. Palestinians have said this for years. Never has it been more visible, more brazen than in this particular conflict. I mean, just look at the death toll. Even if you are the most pro-Israeli person there is, and you believe those 1,200 people on October 7th, those 766 civilians, those 36 kids need to be avenged, 30,000 dead we've just crossed today, and that's a conservative underestimate. It is, I, yeah. I have the Euromed monitor numbers way higher. Way higher, and then under the rubble. 12,500, 13,000, 14,000 children. In what world do we live where we're saying 36 kids were killed by Hamas on... October the 7th, but in retaliation, we're going to kill 12 and a half thousand children. I mean, just, just in sheer, just math of the humanity there. It's just, I've never seen anything like it. Not, not in my lifetime, the way we have simply just accepted this level of death and killing as a society. Not, you know, you said liberal elites and I agree with you on the actual polling. You're right. But let's, be, let's just cast a net of blame a bit more widely as a country and as a society, as a West we're pretty indifferent to this stuff. Kid Rock was on Joe Rogan the other day, and he was... Uh, those are two words. Those are two, <laughs> name, those are two names that <laughs> make me want to drink some water. Um, yeah, and he was saying kill, uh, just kill 30,000 or 40,000 of them at a time if, if they don't release the hostages and just keep doing it. Buck around and, and find out. That yeah, was his and, logic. And I, that can only stem from dehumanization. Yeah. Because he is incapable of thinking of himself as... What if I was a Palestinian yes, child? Exactly. Because you can't get to that position unless you're unable to do that. But also think about how dangerous the dehumanization is. Because okay. if I if I go along with it, then why can't Hamas attack you again and exactly. kill loads of you? Like exactly. I can't say to Hamas, you should not do this. It's immoral, which I do say. I do believe it's immoral to kill civilians, no matter how just your cause is. Certainly killing kids is unforgivable in any scenario. But how can you say that if you've now said those are the that's the way of the world? Yep. And if we're going to play that you started it, well then Palestinians are going to say you started it, and that's we can right. play this game going all the way back to 1948 and beyond. And so either you have some rules of one. By the way, this is a really important point for Americans to acknowledge: is we have a quote unquote rules based order. It's inconsistent. It's selective. It's not very strong, but it's there. We have certain things that emerged over the years. So Israelis go on TV and say, "What about Dresden?" Yeah. And after Dresden, we, we, came, up with bad. <laughs> we came up with Geneva Conventions and we did things at the Hague to Nazis. And we said, well, we maybe shouldn't have done Dresden. Um, we are now throwing that all away mm -hmm. with Biden is complicit. And the British government, and the American government and the French government, they're complicit in saying now to any future offender, 
none of these rules exist anymore because you said Israel could do whatever you want if you had a just cause. So any future country that says we've been wronged, we've been the victim of terrorist act, you can do whatever you want now, apparently. Yeah. And by the way, inconvenient fact, Hamas killed 45% civilian targets. Israel killed 92% civilian targets. So even if you do the apples to apples comparison, it doesn't come out looking good for the Israelis. Yeah, and, and how many 9-11s are we at right. with regards to what's been done I mean, to for the me, what is entertaining is seeing Israeli officials compare themselves to Hamas. That's mm -hmm, your benchmark. Mm -hmm. Even let's say, the, let's say the numbers you just gave, and I haven't seen those numbers. Let's say we reverse them. Even then, how is Hamas your benchmark? Right. Right. How is Hezbollah? How is ISIS? How is any group you want to bring out? I thought you're the West only democracy in the Middle East. You're our Western ally, shared values. So then you don't get to make Hamas your benchmark. You get to make the ICJ your benchmark. Right. You get to make UN Security Council resolutions your benchmark. You get to make Human Rights Watch reports your benchmark. Yeah. I think you're right to point to, you know, in a lot of ways, not that we've ever consistently followed the international rules-based yeah. order, but there's a reason why both Putin in justifying his invasion of Ukraine and Netanyahu in justifying the all-out massacre of um, Gaza civilians points to our actions yes. in uh, the war on terror and in Iraq. I mean, that really did start the unraveling and expose our hypocrisy. Because we used to hide our hypocrisy. This is the point. Yeah. Like, as bad as previous American presidents were, we used to, until George W. Bush, at least, and Iraq, we used to we used to pretend, right? When we went into Iraq in 1991, we were helping Kuwait. Right? When we went right. into Panama, whatever, we we're getting Noriega for drugs or whatever. You know, we have our, we were not this brazen. Yeah. And people that, oh, the brazen, I hear some on the left say, well, I prefer the brazenness, right? I prefer the person who tells you his enemy. Okay, that's nice rhetoric, but the reality is, in a, once we're in the jungle, we're all going to suffer, right? Yeah. And, yeah. And, and before there was some sense of, you, ha you know, somebody gave a good example the other day. When Israel droned, uh, when Israel droned, they, Israel did a drone strike back in the 2000s in which either there was an American citizen nearby or in the car, I can't remember the details. But George W. Bush put out a statement criticizing Israel. Mm. I think that was too far. Mm. That was like one drone strike. Today, Biden can't put out a statement for 30,000 people dead, for attacks on hospitals, schools, cemeteries, churches, mosques. It's just mind-boggling how the Overton window has shifted on what a country can get away with because of Hamas, because of October 7th, which again, I'll say openly, horror. What happened on October 7th was a horror. Does not justify this to the slightest. Yeah, no one here was an apologist for the atrocities on October 7th. That doesn't justify uh, genocide, ethnic cleansing, also, barbarism. are we not going to get more of those atrocities? I just don't, under again, I just that's, don't understand how people yeah. can be that's this it. stupid. That's it. You're it, well, increasing it, recruitment for Hamas as we speak. And that's the thing is these people in the U.S. government know that. They know that? I mean, I think it was Tony Blinken who said there is no military solution for Hamas. What are we doing then? Yeah. I mean, it, it's always been preposterous to say, oh, the surgical hunt for Hamas, as Adam Johnson always talks about. Oh, it's clear what they're actually trying to do, and it's annihilation. I mean, it's collective punishment, and it's annihilation, plain and simple, in front of everybody's eyes. Um, Mehdi, I want to ask you about uh, your big news this week, Zateo, which I know is going to be a great effort to collect to correct some of the wrongs of the, the mainstream media. Tell us about you know, your launch and your plans, what, you, what you've got in store for us. 
Well, thank you so much. Um, yeah, we launched on Wednesday. It was a soft launch. Our content is still in the process of coming. We uh, we launched with a video trailer and we have an essay out today. But look, this is a company that we want to be an all singing, all dancing media company that provides some alternatives to what we have already. And the independent space has been used so effectively by you and others to correct the record on multiple issues. And I wanted to do something big, make some noise, uh, have an impact. The danger, of course, is it's very easy to say, well, we're going to be independent, right? We're going to be independent. We're going to be an alternative. But you don't want to be irrelevant, right? You want We want to have impact. Right. right? Otherwise, what's the point? You're just preaching to a choir. You're talking to yourself. So the ambition is to have impact, is to make a difference, is to influence what is going on in the world and in our broader media. Um, it's not just me. I'm not doing a Tucker Carlson network or TCN. I'm not doing an <laughs> MHN. Um, it is, it, obviously, I'm the front of this. I'm the founder. Uh, but in April, we're going to roll out some of our high-profile contributors that we have uh, joining the team. Uh, we are going to be doing podcasts and streaming shows and articles and newsletters, a whole caboodle. And the aim is to try and show people that there is another way of doing things, interviews, op-eds, et cetera, but also provide a platform for people who want to speak more freely. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been someone who's been very critical of the whole cancel culture debate and the whole, you know, for the last seven, eight years, I've seen right-wingers weaponize free speech uh, on campus and elsewhere. And I'd be one of these people saying, come on, calm down. This is a moral panic on the right. It's not to say I've now changed my position, but what I would say is, and this is where my former colleague, Glenn Greenwald has made this point for many years, is the one place there was undeniably cancel culture and the victims of that cancel culture were people who Palestinians and supporters of Palestine. Yeah. And what we've seen since October 7th is that on steroids, mm -hmm. right? And I think one of the reasons that I'm doing this media company is I want to be able to say, you know what? Say what you want to say about what's happening in the Middle East. Use the G word that a lot of people in our mainstream media run away from. Uh, say it's genocide, if that's what the International Court of Justice is saying it could plausibly be. When we talk about MAGA folks, when we talk about Trump, say racism. Don't say racially tinged. Right? Don't hide behind lazy euphemisms. Don't play both sides games. Um, say it as it is. We have millions of people out there who are desperate for our media to say it as it is to say up is down, so to not say up is down, black is white, hot is cold, which is what so many of our bad faith gaslighters are doing. So for me, it's a real mission. Uh, Zeteo, which comes from the ancient Greek word, which means to seek out, to seek out the truth, is to say the truth requires speaking freely and plainly. And that is what I've always tried to do. And that's what I want to try and provide a platform for others to do going forward. So how big are you looking for it to be? Because it looked like it's going to be a pretty big operation. What do you think in terms of the numbers, in terms of how many people you hire, how many people on air, et cetera? And in terms of the ideological mission of, of it, are you looking at something sort of like where Crystal has somebody who's next to her who disagrees and they can debate it? Or are you looking at people more like-minded? Are you looking for a vast array of takes? Speak on that. So great question. Um, we are a very small team right now because we're a startup and we're scrappy. Uh, we have raised uh, a fair amount of money uh, from investors, I should say. No foreign billionaires, because that's the question I always get. Mm. No. Uh, all Americans, all people upset with the tone of our media coverage. These are people who obviously want to make money, but also believe in the cause. Uh, it's very mission-driven. Um, if it wasn't, we wouldn't be doing this. I could have done a hundred other things. Um, and it's a small team right now. Um, we're punching above our weight, which is what I've always liked to do. But we are going to roll out 
six, seven, eight, nine contributors in April. We've got a bit of time to finalize that team. Some of them I already know. Some we're in talks with. Um, Anybody gonna, you can reveal for us? Not yet. Sorry, but I will try <laughs> in April. Uh, but, no, we, but these are people from academia, from activism, from Hollywood, from uh, from journalism, people you know, people your listeners will know who need... And, and these are people who are going to do maybe one thing a month, maybe a couple of things a month. We, mm-hmm. We're going to stay quite nimble, but we want to just amplify certain voices. And to go back to your point about like, again, just like cancel culture debate, there's this debate about, oh, we have people in echo chambers, which we do, um, and we should have debate and discussion. I agree with that. You know me. I, I love to debate. Um I do, though, want to give a platform to people who I share values with and interests with because I do want to promote their voices. For me, my starting position is who's not being heard from right now? Who do we need right. to hear mm-hmm. from? That's, what I'm, that's what's guiding me. It's not about some, again, it's not about some fake balance. Well, I've got four of these people. I better have four of these. The whole point of doing Zateo is so I don't have to have those considerations. Yeah, so you're not hiring Sean Hannity is the point. <laughs> I'm not hiring Sean Hannity. Probably a good move. That Probably doesn't mean move. that, I won't, that doesn't Hannity, mean I yeah. wouldn't have such people as guests. Right, yeah, I yeah, do yeah, want to yeah. have Got those you. conversations. Mm-hmm. You know me, I like to do tough interviews. Mm-hmm. It's boring just to interview people you agree with. Yeah. Yes, yeah, no one does that better than you do. Oh, that's very it's, kind, it, thank it, you. No, I genuinely mean it. Um, I always admire and have tried to learn from your approach to tough interviews. There are costs to that, Crystal, and a lot of people don't want to do those interviews. I'm well aware of that. And you know this from your shows, and it'll be a challenge for me not with the without the MSNBC platform. See, will the guests that, come? That is in the new media zone. In the new media zone, there are people who I think would probably love to mix it up with you. You know, just off the top of my head, you could Vosh, Destiny. Those are just oh, left wing sure. ones. There's right wing ones too who are like, yeah, I'd love to go back and forth. With but Maddie. in terms of like the elected officials, you know, yeah, would we get a Dan Crenshaw or Vivek Ramaswamy? Let's see. Vivek, he is he willing might do to mix it, it up. He might He's do willing it. to mix it up. He'll come on with you. But As yeah, he waits for his to be uh, Secretary of Health position or whatever he's getting. He wants VP, but he ain't getting it. He ain't getting <laughs> to be VP. honest with you, my experience is you actually have more trouble with um, Democratic politicians and officials because they feel very comfortable in mainstream press, whereas the right has more of an adversarial relationship with mainstream press. They're, they actually interface more with independent media. So, But that's not a bad thing I for think, you because you can was, do those. Well, you know, I hope so. I think that was more interviews. true, though, on the right, Crystal, a few years ago. I think they've become, I think with the Fox Newsmax OAN setup, they have that comfort zone where they don't need to go anywhere. Yeah. And, you know, even when I was at MSNBC, we tried to get more Republicans on. Oh, yeah. yeah. And they just, they're so happy to have that Newsmax. True. Before it was just Fox. Now they've got this plethora of outlets to go get safe space, yeah. cuddly interviews. And that's why I respect people like Dan Crenshaw, who I had an argument with on Twitter. Right. And he right. said, all right, let's do let's it. And do he, came, it. he came on live yeah. and well, we had the argument. As you know, I mean, some of, the, some of these people are such prima donnas too. If they're like selling a book... Yes. Maybe they'll come, but they... Didn't Don Jr. go on The View? Like, no. They'll give you like <laughs> five so. minutes and they, you know, want to get the questions in advance and their aide is there. Ted Cruz, this happened to us with Ted Cruz, who, you know, sat for an interview with Emily and Ryan yes, and the I whole see. time his staff is trying to cut it off and they only want to talk about the book. And anyway, so... You'll, I saw, lots I saw of, Ryan's lots of fun, th- But you'll be able to get lots of interesting people um, to be able to, you know, have an intellectual exchange of ideas. I, I wanted so. to go back to, you had mentioned how probably the largest victims of cancel culture are Palestinians and people who have spoken out for Palestinian rights. I know you don't see yourself as a victim, but do you see yourself as part of that? I mean, is that, do you think that's why you are no longer with MSNBC? That's a great question. <laughs> see, you, you are good at yeah, these good tough interviews. You, <laughs> um, you better have lots of follow-ups. Um, the, look, 
I left MSNBC on January 7th. I announced I was live. I was quitting. Um, I They were very good to let me negotiate a quick exit so I could go off and do my own thing now. Yeah. They canceled the shows, I think, end of November it was, where they announced they were canceling the shows. That was obviously disappointing. Who wants their shows to be canceled? Nobody. Um, and, uh, I mean, you, you've been through the I MSNBC have, I've been there. Yeah. Uh, machine. You would have to ask MSNBC why they did what they did. People have speculated. People have come up with their reasoning. I have, uh, I did my coverage the way I wanted to do my coverage. And even pre-October 7th, a lot of people just woke up to Palestine on October 7th. I was covering it for MSNBC for three and a half years. I covered in 2021 when Biden became president. You remember there was a, was it 11-day bombing campaign of Gaza by Netanyahu then? I grilled an Israeli embassy spokesman at the time, which went viral for MSNBC and no one had any issues. And it was a very well-received interview. Um, you know, I covered Shireen Abu Akhla's killing. Mm-hmm. Um, we, uh, I did segments on apartheid and the A-word, which my colleague Ali Velshi, who is still at MSNBC. And he was, does a good think, job too. Yeah. Was I think the first person on cable to really uh, talk about the A word in the context of Israel-Palestine. Um, so I did all of that. And I, all I can say is I never censored myself. I said what I had to do. I interviewed the people I wanted. One of my last interviews was Mark Regev, uh, the Netanyahu spokesman. Yep. Um, and uh, why did MSNBC cancel my shows? You'd have to ask MSNBC. So there was reporting uh, very soon after October 7th about how you and Ali Valshi and Eamon Moyaldine were being, your roles were being diminished um, as part of the the coverage of, you know, October 7th and then Israel's assault on Gaza. I mean, did you feel pressure being applied to you? You may not have succumbed to that pressure. I think that's clear from your work product. But was there pressure applied to you? I remember watching the ADL dude going on Morning Black, Joe yeah. and saying, oh, is mm-hmm. it Hamas that's writing these scripts, you know, these terrorist yep. talking points? Did you feel that while you were there? So when I was there, as I say, there's, all news organizations had multiple discussions about how to cover this. It was a, a rolling story. It was a shocking story. Um, obviously, I'm bound by what I can talk about Sure. Uh, as a former employee and in terms of sharing. And I'm, I'm also just in my nature. I'm not someone who throws former colleagues under the bus. I've had my differences with many people at The Intercept. Some have come out in the open. I've tried to keep most mm-hmm. uh, behind closed doors. <laughs> uh, there were things I didn't agree with at Al Jazeera English. Um, so, but I, I, I hate these people who kind of and I'm not going to name names, but people who kind of just gratuitously throw people under the bus. Um, Look, conversations were had, lots of conversations were had about editorial directions, about tone, about coverage. That's to be expected in every place. All I can say, and I can only speak for myself, is that I said what I had to say, I did what I had to do, and I asked the questions I wanted to ask. That's how I left MSNBC, and that's what I will always do. And, And... Anyone who knows me knows that's how I operate. Crystal, you've talked about some uh, instances you faced when you were at MSNBC uh, about how you gave a monologue basically saying, you know, please, Hillary, don't run. I don't remember what year this was. 2014? 2014, you did that. And then, you know, you thought nothing of it. You did it. And then afterwards, higher ups came to you and were basically like, if you're going to do a monologue on Hillary Clinton again, you have to run about it. Yeah, it wasn't you can't do it. It's that the literal president of the network has to approve any future commentary about Hillary Clinton, because, I mean, basically what I was told is that a call came in from the Hillary camp. They're very upset about this monologue and they were, you know, oh, you're going to be unfair to us and we're not going to give you access effectively. And so the that was one where the edict literally did sort of come down from the top. And, you know, you you said and I, and I believe you because I saw your coverage that whatever you know, conversations were had, didn't impact you saying and covering the conflict the way that you felt appropriate. For myself, I mean, I can't rule out 
that that thought of that subconsciously scrutiny. got to you. Subconsciously, yes, right. yeah. I mean, yeah. you can't. You're a human well, okay, being, so let's right? Take a, let's take a step back then. Let's take a step back to the big picture. Yeah. Big picture. I've worked at the BBC, Sky News, and ITV News in the UK behind the scenes as a producer. Sometimes very senior producer. Uh, I worked at Al Jazeera English. English. I worked at The Intercept and I worked at NBC News in front of the camera as a as an on-screen personality. In all of those places, there were of course there were pressures. There were corporate pressures, yeah. financial pressures, ideological pressures. Anyone who claims, and this, we're going to get into kind of Noam Chomsky territory, that you know that you can just ignore all that stuff. Of course not. Of course that applies. I've never claimed that there's not a trade-off. Right. For those of us who are on the left working within mainstream media, the issue is where is that trade-off? Where is the line? And is it worth it? Right. And I remember when yeah, I did my right. when I did my book when I when I released Win Every Argument last year, I went on a book tour, and I'm going to do a shameless plug. It's out this week in paperback. I want to talk about <laughs> that a little bit. Yeah. When when I did the book tour for that last year, we did an event at Politics and Prose, and you can watch it on YouTube with with my former colleague Jen Saki. And somebody in the audience said to me, came up to the mic, we did a Q and A, and he said. Young kid, and I feel so bad because I was very aggressive in my response. Turns out he was a fan and he was just expressing himself, not in the best way. I got defensive and when I get defensive, I get aggressive. Bad habit. He said to me, I've been following you for years and you called out Saudi Arabia and you called out Israel and you called out America and now you work in corporate media. You still and do I said, those things. Yeah. And can you point to me where I haven't been calling out Saudi Arabia, Israel, or American foreign policy? And he goes, yeah, yeah, okay, fair enough. And, <laughs> and, and afterwards said that he was actually a fan. He wasn't criticizing me. He just... Anyway, wanted to raise the point. Yeah. Wanted to raise the point. But my point being, there's a balancing act. And I know there are some purists, I'm sure some listeners of this show will say, no one should ever have anything to do with mainstream media. They're beyond. I don't agree with that. I don't agree I, with that either. I, I'm not of the view that we should have no voices in corporate media or mainstream media. And nor am I view that everyone who works in those places is a sellout or has had to sell their soul. I would argue that me and a bunch of other people, I'm not going to take their names and embarrass them, have actually managed to do a great job in mainstream media right. in terms of staying true to their principles, in terms of giving a voice to the voices, in terms of being truthful, in terms of giving historical and political context. I mean, for me, I'll, I'll, I will take this to my grave. You know the highlight from what? No, there's many highlights. One of the big highlights of me working at MSNBC for three and a half years as a British American brown Muslim lefty immigrant from Al Jazeera in the Intercept turns up at NBC Universal. I get an email one day from Noam Chomsky mm. who says, and I quote, and we all wish Noam the best of health right now. He says, "In 25 years, I've never been invited on MSNBC." You're the first person to ever invite me on MSN. Wow. wow. In, fact, I got him, in fact, I got him on twice. Wow. Um, so for me, I'm like, yeah, I didn't need to do that. And I'm not trying to brag. It's not a brag or a humble brag or whatever it is. It's just a factual statement. <laughs> so I didn't bar. need to get Noam Chomsky on, yeah. but I got him on. I didn't need to get certain voices on. And I believe that was of value. Well, and I know that's of value because when I left, a lot of people reached out to me and said, you were the person getting these voices on. Yeah. So I do believe there should be people working in those spaces. So I'm going to ask you, I know you said you're, you're not going to brag. I'm going to ask you to brag now, though. Right. Because I didn't say I don't love my, brag. I just wasn't <laughs> bragging at the time. Happy to brag now. My reading of the situation as an outsider is that I think if you were given a primetime show at the 8 o'clock slot or you know whatever, you could have easily been the face of the network. And I think you could have definitely surpassed Chris Hayes numbers, no offense to Chris Hayes. Maddow's numbers, no offense to Rachel Maddow. But like, you're tailor-made for that position, but you weren't given that position. And so do you view that the same as I view that? That it, it's almost like there are points deducted 
because you're so outspoken, because you're on the left. So, again, it, it, these are difficult conversations for me to have for obvious reasons, but I would say this, just state the stuff that's on the public record. I did guest host many of those shows that you mentioned. To be fair to MSNBC, they gave me a lot of opportunities. I, at certain times, I'd be like, what am I doing here? Why am I at nine o'clock presenting live on MSNBC when a year ago I was just this random dude that a few people read here and there? So they did give me opportunity. I sat in for Rachel Maddow. I sat in for Alex Wagner. I sat in for Chris Hayes. I sat in for uh, Ali Velshi, uh, multiple other people, uh, Lawrence O'Donnell. I did get those opportunities and you feel like the kid who's been allowed to drive the parents' nice car, like take it for a spin, am I going to break it? Um, and I got good numbers and got good guests. And so that, therefore it, it's a little, it's hard to come up with a simple explanation for what happened. And that's why I don't offer one. I don't want to speculate. And I say each to their own. I can only tell you that, you know, I enjoyed my run there and they canceled their shows, which is their right to do. But on the other hand, you know, they canceled my shows, but they also gave me great opportunities in primetime. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll also... Which they didn't need to do, right? That's true. But I'll, you, I'll also say in response to the Jenk Uger, he has his story from when he was over there, that he was on, I believe, the six o'clock time slot it was, and he had the best numbers that they ever had in that time slot. And then they pulled him into the office, whoever the president was at the time, and basically told him, like, you know, we got to work on your tone. Our friends in Washington don't like your tone. And well, it's because he was going, at the time, he was going very aggressively against the Obama administration, I think, uh, uh, in, involving Egypt, Egypt policy. And so that was his sort of like, here's the moment that- Well, let me, make a, let me make a generic point about media in general, which is, again, going back to Chomsky and ideology and, and manufacturing consent and the rest. I mean, it's not always about numbers and money and profit, is it? That's the point. I mean, Tucker Carlson found this out at Fox. Right. The guy's yeah. the highest rated host. If you were mm -hmm. tell me the night before he was fired, Tucker Carlson's going to get fired. They can't fire Tucker Carlson. Yeah. They can actually. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, especially uh, yeah, that's kind of my because you just made my own point for me better than I made it for me. Well, especially because um, just in terms of the business model, you know, these are MSNBC is a tiny blip on the bottom line of a gigantic corporation. So the difference between you know you getting better ratings than whoever the alternative is, it like is barely it's negligible to them. And um, the other thing is, you know, there's obviously for good reason, a lot of fixation on the ratings and assumption that just like ratings equal more money. And that's where the majority of the profit. A lot of the profit also comes from the cable carry rates. Yes. So it's less that's sensitive. So much money. That's right. So it's less sensitive to the ratings fluctuations also that I think a lot of people really assume. So, you know, you don't have to co-sign this, but very much from the outside looking in, it seems that you were punished for actually being good at your job, that, you know, in theory, a media organization, the whole the whole point is to hold power to account, something that in numerous interviews with people across the ideological yes. spectrum, we can point to examples of you doing very effectively. And so I think that was uncomfortable for them for the same reason that me doing a freaking one monologue about Hillary Clinton was uncomfortable for them. That's how it appears from the outside. One thing I would say is we also got to talk about audiences right now, which is mm. we live in a space where everyone is retreating into kind of tribes. Yes. And it means that people don't quite understand what the journalist's job is. True. There's a lot of There's a lot of treating it like a football game, like my team versus the other team. And what are you doing? You look like you're soft on the other team. And... For me, you know, one of the interesting things I found at MSNBC is I grill everyone who comes on the show who has power. Obviously, there's different tones. I'm not going to take the same tone with 
AOC as I do with Dan Crenshaw. I agree with AOC on most issues, but I'm still going to ask her questions that yeah, maybe she doesn't, that she doesn't that, want to have yeah. answered. And I'm still going to ask, you know, White House officials uh, questions about, you know, I had Ron Klain on multiple times, pressed him on US support for Saudi Arabia and filibuster issues. I had Jen Psaki on the show back when she was White House press secretary. She gave me a lovely blurb for my book saying I was one of the toughest interviews she did. That was on MS. And I remember when I did that, people on Twitter said, you're so disrespectful to mm. Jen Psaki. Mm. Jen was fine. Yeah. Jen's like, that's my job. Of course, you should ask me tough questions. Um, it was actually people on her behalf. Right. And that really worries you. If you live in a country where people are just being like, well, journalists, why are you asking a tough question to my guy? I only ask it to the other guy. Right. right. I have my views. I don't hide my views. Obviously, I'm on the left. Obviously, I'm going to be tougher, uh, you know, tougher in terms of, you know, just my general approach to the Republicans and the Democrats. But that doesn't change the fact that when I'm doing an interview, it doesn't matter what my views are, I'm still going to say, all right, but even if it's something, you know, we always laugh on my team, if it's someone I really agree with, I'm still going to say, okay, but this is what your critics will say. It doesn't mean right. I to say mm -hmm. it, but I, I want to mm -hmm. put that out there. Because otherwise, what's the point, right? And it worries me that we now have this culture where everything is a sports game and everything is just my team, my tribe against the other person. And the role of journalism is just to reinforce your priors. And that is a real problem. The, you know, the cognitive biases, the need for affirmation. Um, it, it's dangerous to democracy. It's dangerous mm -hmm. to our media. Uh, and social media, of course, makes it much worse. Yeah, that's so, a great point. Let me ask you this. Who has been your toughest interview or debate? You know, off the top of my head, I remember you interviewed Eric Prince. Yes. You've done multiple. That wasn't my toughest. Of course. Mm -hmm. You've done multiple Israeli officials. You know, Matt Taibbi one kind of was famous and viral. That wasn't so. tough either. <laughs> <laughs> so who's been your toughest one? And, you know, more like even if, even if it's an interview, I'm thinking more like debatey. You know what I mean? It's a good question. Um, there have been guests who over the years have found a way. So my thing is I'm very passionate and passionate is my code for saying I get angry very quickly. Um, and I always have to kind of be like, stay calm. First of all, I have RAMF, which is which I call resting angry Muslim face. <laughs> I'm a brown Muslim dude and my standard face is quite serious. So I remember when I started doing interviews, people would say to me, you know, when the, the cutaway shot, you look mad at the guest. I'm, like, I'm not, I'm just listening. That's me thinking intently. No, no, you look angry. You've got to smile more. So I'm faking smile. Um, so me, I'm always conscious of that already. So the best, the guests who really come out looking stronger, and my wife will say this to me anytime I do an interview, um, I'm supposed to be doing a, uh, uh, and she, she will remind me like, stay calm. And my producers, the best producer will say, stay calm. Someone like Ehud Olmer, former Israeli prime minister. Mm -hmm. I did an interview with him for MSNBC a couple of years ago. And he did this thing where he was, he just did this thing where he goes, Mr. Hassan, calm down. Mr. Hassan, mm. why are you getting so worked? And then you're in that position where you go, I'm not getting worked yeah, up. And yeah. then you sound more worked up. Like, it's a brilliant move. I don't know what I'm telling you. So it's this. a demeanor thing. It's a demeanor yeah. thing and also puts your it puts the interviewer on the defense. You as an interviewer right, do yeah. not want to be on the defensive. Right. The guest is supposed to be on the defensive. If that guest can turn the table, so the most successful, I, I remember I did the Turkish um, uh, prime minister, deputy prime minister back at Al Jazeera days. And it was after the, the attempted coup and Erdogan's crackdown. I had all this good material. And he was smooth and calm and smiling and had an answer. And I was like, wow, this is, this is Teflon. None of my things are landing at all. Wow. Mm. So there, you know, those are the guests, the guests who are able to tonally, disarm. tonally mm -hmm. disarm you or go around you or deflect your questions. Those are the ones I, those are the ones I shouldn't be revealing this, but those are the ones I struggle with. And who would your dream debate be with? I, I, ben Shapiro came to my mind when I thought about 
you know, you debating somebody. I think I you mean, versus the problem ben, Shapiro, with ben Shapiro. I think you is, circles around him. I mean, it'll be fun. The problem with Ben Shapiro is that uh, I mean, he's overrated. Of course, just to be yeah. just to be clear yeah. about it. So really, for me, the, the best interviews are not the ones where you're shooting fish in a barrel. Like it's boring <laughs> to me to have someone who's really. Um, like you know, you, Matt Tabor, you mentioned Matt, someone I used to have a lot of respect for and time for. He didn't bother to prepare when he turned up right. for an interview mm -hmm. with me. So it's you know, I said to him, "What about Modi?" And he said, "Well, I don't know about Modi." But you told me on Twitter you wanted to talk about Modi. That's why I invited you on. Right. So those kind of interviews, it's not fun. I'd much rather have a rigorous debate. I think Tony Blair is someone who comes to mind for me. I'm, I, hmm. I grew up in the UK. Tony that. Blair is a major part of my life as a as a young person, as a 16, 17 year old liberal discovering politics. I was very keen in 1997 when he came in, you know, the Tony Blair was seen as a landslide victory. Then 9-11 happens, Iraq happens, people like me are marching in the streets against Iraq as a 23-year-old. Um, watching him as a journalist in the UK, he's one of the smartest, savviest, most eloquent people. He just is. I, I don't, I, I loathe his politics and I loathe him, but smart guy. And really interviewers have never really been able to land a glove on him, mm. on Iraq in particular, mm -hmm. which I believe he should be sitting in the Hague for. Right. Uh, John Stewart actually, interestingly, once came close to really making him squirm a bit, but he's always been able to kind of really just eat his interviewers for breakfast. Wow. And he's someone I would love to sit down with and go out back and forth for a good half an hour, hour and pin him down a bit because I just think he's gotten away with so much. Stewart is an underrated interviewer um, when he really prepares and decides to go in. And that well, was one well, of his Apple interviews. Exactly. Were fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And it was funny because and then, Kramer, and then they canceled and then they, they were too fantastic because they canceled the show. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. And he said it was because of censorship, especially on some of the topics that China, he wanted to one. cover. But it was always funny because I think these officials would sit down with him thinking like, oh, the Daily Con, exactly. John Stewart, that's going to be fine. And then they're faced with this very rigorous um, questioner. And I think uh, think about John Stewart and John Oliver and some of those folks is they do a lot of homework. Well, the other and, thing... And, and, and I say that in the book, like, every, you can be the most eloquent, you can be the most dynamic, charismatic person there is. Yeah. You cannot win an argument or a debate or do a good... If you haven't done the you homework. Do the homework. You can't that is 100% the case. The other thing is, um, I got the chance to interview Jon Stewart during when he was promoting his Apple show. And he told us that he told everybody that works for him, like, you need to know that these people are not going to be your friends anymore. Like, you need to just assume they're going to hate you afterwards. And I do think that's one of the problems with the mainstream press, too, because they're worried about their contacts and their future interviews and how yes. they're going to, you know, how they're going to get the politician on the next time or their aide or whatever. And so that just naturally, again, as a human being, yes. is going to curb the 100%. how aggressively you're able to um, go at a person. One thing I wanted to ask you about on your business model, I know you're um, you're trying to raise money through subscriptions right yes. now to, to fund the launch. You mentioned you also got some investors in, um, American wealthy investors who are committed to the cause. How, though, do you protect yourself from their influence? Because even people who are well-intentioned, like they may have a the certain... Subscribers or the investors? The investors. A certain, that's another question, though, too. Audience capture is important. Very question in so. um, independent Very spaces so. as well. But to focus on the, you know, the wealthy investors at this point, how do you protect yourself from their interest, you know, whatever their particular hobby horse is, whatever issues they may be uncomfortable with impacting your coverage at Zateo? It's a great question. Uh, the, the the short answers are, uh, are number one, um, I explained to them all very clearly that they would have no editorial say in the company, and that was a condition for the money. And I made it clear I don't need the money if that's the case. And number two, uh, we built the company in such a way that even if they want to have editorial say, they can't. I'm in control. 
That's just all an answer. How much, um, what about on the business side? Because that's the other thing, as you yeah. are probably already finding out. A new and scary world for me. Sometimes there's a tension between making the most money. Yes. And, you know, adhering to your principles, you know, yeah. for example, we don't take any, we don't do any ad reads yeah. here. Yeah, show, we don't we interface with any advertiser corporate, yes. um, you know, entities, they don't place ads, et cetera. So what about on the business front? Are you concerned about attention with, you know, them wanting to get their money back yeah. and to turn a profit and you sticking to your values? So one of the reasons we went with the subscriber model is because it does give you that freedom from corporate advertising. If Elon Musk feels pressure from advertisers, the right. richest man in the world, and I'm not defending Elon Musk, I think those advertisers are right on, the, on those issues. <laughs> but if he, even he can feel the pressure and the heat from advertisers, then what's little old me gonna do? So for me, it was very obvious that the subscriber way was the way to go, not just because it's a growing world and the, the right have done it so successfully, the Barry Weisses, the Ben Shapiros, the Tucker Carlson maybe, that was one obvious reason, but also this idea of independence, right? Joe Rogan can say outrageous things and no one can quote unquote cancel him because he has an independent followership and base. I believed, perhaps immodestly, that I have a base and I have a followership both in America and globally. And this was the proposition to test it. Okay, let's see. Well, if you build it, will they come? And we're only 24 hours in, but they've come. Good. And thank yeah. you to those people who have come. Uh, and we're still building fast. They've come at bigger numbers than we imagined. Um, and... Therefore, I'm filled with some relief that actually, all right, I know that no matter what happens now, these thousands of people, mm -hmm. they're with me yep, and they're with us and they're with the cause and they're with the mission. And therefore, by the way, on the advertisers front, when I was at The Intercept, I launched Deconstructed, which Ryan Grimm now hosts. Yeah. And there was a similar discussion about ads and Jeremy Scale was presenting Intercepted at the time. And we both had our list of people we won't have as advertisers. And mine was longer because I'm Muslim, so it's like no alcohol, <laughs> no pork, as well as no arms, as well as no arms, sellers and banks. Mine was even longer. Um, but, you know, it's the same principle now. Will we take, I'm not ruling out that we might do ads. I mean, that's not an integral part of our business model. Maybe for the podcast, we will. Um, but that'll be, again, limited to my principles. And just on the, on, the, on the money situation, again, I just want to be clear. I didn't need to do this, right? Right. My wife said, don't do this. Mm -hmm. What do you know about business? Well, just yeah. go be freelance and you'll make as much money as you made at MSNBC. I've taken a pay cut to do this, as with any startup. That's not, I'm not bragging again. That's just the, way, the world of startups. The CEO and founder takes a pay cut to show commitment to the cause. That's what we're doing. This isn't about money for me. If I want to make money, there's many other places all three of us could make money. So uh, my final question for you uh, uh, about your book. Win every argument. Yes. Um, so as somebody who's also kind of, you know, a debater in one form or another, I haven't done all that many, but when I do, people seem to like it. I'm going to give you what my approach is, and I'm curious how you differ from how I okay. approach these things. So my approach is I go in there, like doing homework is number one, most important. I agree with that. But then I try to treat every debate in good faith. Yeah. Like that the person who I'm across from, even if I know their bad faith, I treat it yes. like it's good faith. Yes. Um, and outside of that, all I do is try to be concise and punchy, but like also very factual. That's my whole approach to debates. How, what is your approach in debates? Because as everybody already knows, you're viewed as one of the, you know, biggest uh, debaters on the left who's uh, most influential and, and does the best job. Well, that's very kind. I do what you do. I mean, it oh, is about preparation. It is about good faith. I talk a lot in the book about the importance of good faith debate. I try and avoid bad faith debate, but obviously you can't always avoid right. them. Mm -hmm. And what you said is so important. You said, 
even if they're bad faith, I try and treat good faith. Why is that so important? Because of the audience. Right. Because right. the purpose of the debate is not to win over the other person. This is one of the great misnomers, myths, problems when it comes to debating. The job is not to convince the other person. Maybe it is if you're at a Thanksgiving table with crazy Uncle Tom and you want to convince him that mm -hmm. Trump is not the way to go in November. Mm -hmm. But in general, if you're debating in public terms as a politician, as a journalist, as an actor, you're trying to convince a third party, an audience, either in the room or watching at home. And for them, yeah, the other guy might be in bad faith, but they're not. They're actually genuinely might be on the fence and you're trying to reach out to them. So therefore, just piling on to the other person, which I'm not saying you shouldn't do. I have a whole chapter on ad hominem attacks. <laughs> I'm not against ad hom. But you also need to be able to have one eye or two eyes on that audience catering to, okay, but what is, and I talk about this in the book, how do you steel man your opponent's argument? Too often we straw man, right? It's very easy to straw man and say, well, he says this. He doesn't really say that and then take it apart. It's actually much better to go, all right, this guy may be a loser. <laughs> he may be a liar. Uh, you know, it may be an Israeli spokesman who lies all the time. All right, fine. But Steelman, what is Israel's best argument? And take that one down. You'll have much mm -hmm. more impact. Even if the other person's not saying it, it's much stronger for you to be able to say, I didn't just shoot fish in a barrel. I went for the strongest argument and took that apart. And I think that just endures more. It stands out more. And as for being concise and punchy, that is the biggest problem in our world. People are not concise and punchy. Even people, professional journalists, professional politicians, just aren't. Yeah, I feel like especially on the left. It's funny, yes, it's true, funny yeah. Mark Lamont Hill. We One more study. Yeah. <laughs> Can I fight another poll? Mm -hmm. In 1972. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, killer, killer. Unless you're Norm Pinkelstein. He can get away mm -hmm. with the lengthy, you know, diatribe. He's got a charm to him. He does have a charm to him. And also just encyclopedic knowledge. Right. But Although um, on YouTube now you can do one and a half speed and still get the same there thing. There you go. You right. There you go. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because we had Mark Lamont Hill on uh, last week. Who's also great at this. Another cable news refugee to yes. add to the collection here. <laughs> but um, he said something very similar because I was asking him, we actually played some of the Norm Finkelstein, Rabbi Shmuley debate on Piers Morgan. I was like, do you think this is worthwhile, you know, to go up if somebody like Shmuley is so clearly yeah. bad faith? And he said something very similar of like, it's really not about that other person. It's about the audience. Yes. And so you do assume so a level of good faith, even with bad faith people, because of the presentation you want to give to the audience. Also nature of a vacuum. And that's what, when I started doing public stuff in 2009-10 in the UK, you know, very few Muslims in, in, in the media then, war on terror was the biggest subject. There was always a discussion about terrorism this week or that, Islamic extremism. People would call me. I was one of the only Muslims. I, you know, isn't it? I've got a wife and a baby at the time. Can you fly here? Can you go here? And I would say yes, yes. And then I start stop saying yes, because I have a life. And then I would watch those debates without right. me and I'd be mm. like, oh, uh, no. I and then I was like, <laughs> I have a moral obligation to go yeah. sit there and give the other side. Uh, yeah. So there's that as well. Like you, you can empty chair, but that doesn't help you if like the audience is still going to see that. Stuff, yeah. Right. Kyle mm -hmm. Cattelli was dying to be on that CNN panel when the Michigan results were coming in the other night to give Nina some backup because it was, yeah, that some was, of the things uh, were being said were awful. pretty wild. Um, when is the hard launch? How can people support your work? And also I was going to say, Kyle brought up Ben Shapiro. That would be a great, that would get be a splashy buzz, uh, a splashy yeah. launch. Launched if you did, debating him? you to debate him. Would Ben agree to a debate with me? I, I, I think, he so. think he would. He's I one of those would. people who would will do it. Yeah. Would he? Maybe. He, I think he would. Worth you, a try. I mean, Worth did you try. ever watch his interview with Andrew Neal, the BBC host? Yo, that did not go well at all for Ben. Because <laughs> he was outside oh, of yeah. a, oh, he that's right. was the outside of a comfort lefty. zone. Yeah. And he's a conservative. Well, he also, he clearly didn't prepare. Yeah, that was it. We will have, hopefully, some splashy interviews in April. Uh, we're going to launch in April. Haven't got the exact date nailed down yet. Uh, um, 
but we're launching hard launch. We're going to unveil our contributors. We're going to launch the shows. Right now, we're going to do a weekly show that I will host uh, in a studio very much like this one. We're going to do a, a, a bi-weekly podcast. We're going to have contributors contributing video essays, a lot of written content. Uh, the site is, let me do a plug if you don't mind. No, Z- by all means. Yeah. Zeteo News, Z-E-T-E-O News.com. Um, and it is a subscriber model. So please do sign up for whatever you can afford. And uh, right now, it's just a soft launch, but we are doing a lot of stuff right now. We're going to put out some content tomorrow. Uh, we've got an essay out today, but yeah, we're, t- we're, we're slow. We're easing into it. This is a whole new world. It's a lot of work, as you guys know. You, you guys know more than me. This Doing this stuff, this ain't easy without a big conglomeration backing yeah. you. It's hard work. It requires a lot of trust and support from the people out there. And I know you appreciate your listeners and readers, and I appreciate the ones we've just picked up in the last 24 hours a lot. Yeah. Well, we're very excited to see I appreciate what you is in me. the future. And thanks so much for, for joining you. us. Yeah, yeah it was thanks awesome. for taking time. time with us today. All right, guys. So that was uh, Mehdi Hassan. But then again, I heard him say Hassan now. So now I'm back to being confused. Do I say it the original way I said it, Hassan, or do I say Hassan? Just Mehdi. We'll just stick with well, Mehdi. Okay, I'll go with Mehdi. Um, a really interesting conversation. Um, yeah, for the new thing that he's doing, I, I, he, it needs to be him as much as possible, in my opinion. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. him... Think about like the modern way the younger generation does like streaming and like, you know, they turn on the camera and they talk for like six hours and it's just like multiple debates and talking shit. And like if he were to do it like that, it'd be very, it'd be really good. People would want to watch it. Yeah, he's got all the tools in the toolkit to make it very successful. Yeah, but running an organization is a whole different ballgame. It's very difficult to run a a whole organization. You know what I mean? Like a whole company and you got people doing 87 different things and you know it's it, it's a lot it's a whole nother skill set you know Absolutely. what i'm saying i hope he feels um a sense of relief and freedom I, how can he not being out of msmbs especially at this moment because of you know what's happening in gaza and now he'll just be able to be free to say what he thinks and not that he you know self-censored on msnbc he was very courageous there as well but now you just don't have that thing hanging over you every time you go to send down a tweet make a statement book a guest do an interview and that just gives you a, a level of confidence and a level of freedom that i hope he's able to really appreciate and enjoy yeah i mean i like it when somebody who's on this side of the camera tries to do something like do something create something their own. I think that's always better than somebody who was never on the camera, doesn't do this part of it, and they try to start something and, like, get the pieces together. You know what I'm saying? I think the puzzle pieces are going to fit better from somebody who knows this this side of it, you know? But again, I I would just say he needs to get in front of the camera as much as possible. And the other thing I said, lean into debates, bro. Lean into debates. You are the king debate, bro. Yeah. You know? He is the king debate, bro. Yeah. He's also from, you know, the older generation, though, where... Uh, it's not as, it wasn't as hyper online as this younger generation is, but he could still take his phenomenal debating skills and move it to this new media apparatus. And yeah. I think it would, I think it would do great. Yeah. Cause it's hard when you see, when you see him smacking down some Israeli official or whatever, you can't look away. You know, you got to cover it. You got to talk about it. It's just like, Ooh, this is interesting. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's wild to think about his last like major interview was Mark Regev from, you yeah. know, mm-hmm. 
Israeli government. And that's wild. Um, yeah. The one other thing I wanted to get to ask him, which uh, we didn't, was I. It would have been a long conversation though, so we didn't have the time. But Biden versus Trump. I mean, I've heard him talk about this recently. He was yeah. with the Pod Save guys, and he does appear to be making the argument to them, like, "Look, man, you can't chastise and berate." these Arab Americans and Muslim Americans who are like, I don't really know if I could vote for Biden now. I have 20 family members who died in Gaza, et cetera, et cetera. He seems to be making the argument of like, you got to understand where these people are coming from and understand that the onus is on Joe Biden. Right. But he has that position while at the same time having the position that like, it's still obviously true that Biden is better than Trump. Yeah. So I'd be very interested, interesting to see where his mind is at in terms of, is he going to actually go vote for Biden? You know what I mean? I think he is. I mean, it seems like he's fallen on the side of like, you know, strategic voting and lesser of two evils and, you know, which I think is a reasonable path to walk at this point. But I would go way beyond just, you know, you have to understand where Arab Americans or Muslim Americans are coming from. You have to understand where anyone is coming from who's like, I don't want to vote for someone who is assisting a genocide. Yeah. It just makes it more of a debate ender when it's like, I have 12 family members who died in Gaza. And you're telling me to vote yeah. for this dude who like shipped the weapons to do it. Yeah, because then the response is, you can go fuck yourself. Yeah. Right? You know what I mean? Yep. So. Yeah. But I think there was an assumption. For, first, the Biden people thought like, oh, this whole genocide it'll situation. Blow it'll mm-hmm. blow over. People are going to get over it. It's a long time till election day. Then I think the cope was, well, sure, Arab Americans are upset about it, but that's just a small percentage of the population. And now with the uncommitted vote, you know, vastly exceeding expectations in Michigan and really, you know, yeah, the highest numbers were in Dearborn and in college towns like Ann Arbor. But there was a pretty high performance for uncommitted across the entire state. So it really kind of kills the idea that, oh, it's only Arab Americans who really care about this genocide. They have a huge, huge problem. And it's only getting worse for them. And I mean, that's, you know, obviously like the least of the concerns when you have the horrors that are being done to um, people in Palestine. But, you know, I think they've been utterly delusional and just existing in a bubble, thinking that aiding and abetting a genocide is not also going to be an electoral problem for them come November. I mean, there are young people everywhere. Yes, granted, Arab Americans and Muslim Americans are a relatively small uh, demographic in this country, right? Young people are everywhere. Mm-hmm. And you, Democrats need young people in order to win, period. By the way, black Americans also, you know, in a very different place from Biden overwhelmingly on this issue as well. So basically among every key part of the Democratic base, they've got a problem here. It is not just confined to some small, narrow demographic. And did you see what the New York Times did where they did this sectarian article where they were pitting like getting a ceasefire against the Jewish vote? And it's like, you absolute jackasses, when you poll the Jewish American population, the majority of them want a ceasefire. Yeah. So you're just doing lazy, sectarian, bigoted, like, if they're Jewish, they must support the genocide stuff. That's insane. Yeah, you want to talk about fomenting anti-Semitism. Right. Right. Like, painting with a broad brush that everyone who happens to be this religion is going to view this conflict as, you know, being pro-Netanyahu is insane. And, uh, you know, I think about that lady who was like the female equality minister or whatever the hell in Israel, like, saying not, not we need to remember what Israel did, but saying, I cheer for the ruins of Gaza. And every Palestinian baby and grandbaby needs to know what the Jews did here. 
So again, like who are the ones fomenting anti-Semitism here when you, you know, just assume an entire religious group is going to be behind your slaughter and back your actions all 100 percent? It's it's like when Netanyahu made the argument in some speech, like actually Hitler didn't want to kill all the Jews. He originally just tried to expel them. He wanted to expel them, but then he was convinced by some Palestinian that he actually should kill them all. It's like you're doing literal Holocaust revisionism as you call other people anti-Semitic. Really? You're going to like uh, de facto defend Hitler and you're going to call others anti-Semitic? Like, fuck out of here, man. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Yeah. All right, guys. That's the show. Hope you enjoyed. Um, we love you. And uh, you guys all know the standard shameless plug and pitch. So you go ahead and fill it in here yourself. But <laughs> we'll talk to you next time. Peace.